The following episode of Scream Queens is dedicated in loving memory to Lillian Fitzgerald, my mom. This program is a proud member of Univaz. Unified, unique, voices. Learn more at univazpods.net. Hello, my name's Patrick, and I'm a Scream Queen. I'm a Scream Queen, and so are you! Again, my beautiful screamers, and welcome to another episode of Scream Queens. It's the podcast where horror gets gay. This is episode 344, season 13, episode 7. Tonight, we're kicking off Sean S. Cunningham month. And what better way to do that than with his most infamous of films, Friday the 13th. But before we do that, please allow me to introduce myself. My name is Patrick Walsh, and ever since 2010, I've been your guide to the weird and wonderful world of horror movies. But you are going to have to see them through my very, very gay little eyes. <laughs> I am delighted that you can join me here tonight, because uh, I don't know if you know, tonight's a very special night. No, I'm not just talking about Sean S. Cunningham month. I'm not just talking about an episode on Friday the 13th. Oh, you haven't heard. Well, there's a story around these parts. On a hot summer night, 13 years ago, it began. And just when you thought it was over... Just when you thought you were finally safe, whenever the stars aligned, it came back. And now that thing that was born 13 long years ago is 13 years stronger, 13 years wiser, 13 years more sickening. And what began 13 years ago ends tonight. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I scaring you? Oh, well, unfortunately for you, it's too late to turn back now. What? You were warned. You are doomed. Welcome to the Friday the 13th Spectacular. Hello? Who is that? Oh, hi. What are you doing out in this mess? One.
are new to Scream Queens, you're probably wondering, what on earth is a Friday the 13th spectacular? Why is he saying it's so weird? What is she talking about? Well, I'll tell you. Many, many moons ago, when dinosaurs still roamed the earth and I first started doing Scream Queens, shortly afterwards, a Friday the 13th was coming up on the actual calendar. So I said, it seems obvious that for Friday the 13th, I should do an episode about Friday the 13th, right? Of course, right. But the thing is, one of the reasons I started Scream Queens was because I got really tired of hearing podcasts that just rehashed the same things over and over again. So the hook that I had then was that I'm really, really old, which means I saw all of the Friday the 13th films in the movie theater. And that means I have a whole lot of weird stories about seeing them because I saw them way too young, which we'll get into tonight a bit. And being a baby podcaster, you know, this was episode three, maybe episode four, very, very early on in the show. I was trying really hard to be someone I'm not. In other words, I was trying to be cool. Back then, I pushed myself to try to be funnier than I actually am and be a completely different person than I actually am, which means I couldn't just put out a normal podcast episode about Friday the 13th. I had to make it a spectacular, and then I had to go the extra mile and be extra, extra and make it a spectacular. But regardless of my jaded, cynical view of my podcasting youth now, the Friday the 13th Spectacular quickly became a tradition. Every time a Friday the 13th came up on the calendar, every time after that, I did the next film in the series. But we ran out of Friday the 13th films a long time ago because I've been doing this since the dawn of time. But I didn't want to get rid of the Spectacular because it's one of my most popular episodes and people like to say Spectacular along with me, apparently. Apparently it's a big thing. Who knows? Whatever. I don't judge. I do, but I don't. Anyway. When we ran out of Friday the 13th films, what I would do instead is when a Friday the 13th came up on the calendar, I would find a film that was somehow connected to someone involved somewhere in the Friday the 13th oeuvre. And that's how I've been doing it for years now. And I said, Patrick, it's year 13. I think it's time you go back to the beginning. You've grown a lot since then. You see things differently, even more differently than you did then. I think it's time to go back to Camp Crystal Lake as a grown up this time. I think it's time that I finished what I started. 
And since it's absolutely no fun to spend the night at a spooky summer camp all by yourself, I have brought out one by two fabulous guests with me. They are both incredible out queer filmmakers. We've met them both before, and I can't wait to have them on because they're both Friday the 13th fanatics like I am. And maybe, just maybe, if all three of us work together, we might finally be able to answer the question, does Marianne kiss as good as I do? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, at my GNCs, wherever you may be, please make some noise for Bart Mastronardi and Michael Hello, hello. <laughs> no, don't do that. Uh, it's so excited to spend Friday the 13th here at camp with both of you. Yes, nothing could possibly go wrong. It's going to be the best summer ever. <laughs> As always at Camp Crystal Lake. Michael, we just saw you in September, so I'm going to spend a little time with Bart. Bart, for those of you who don't remember, who is Bart Mastronati? I mean, I know who you are, but tell them who you are. Uh, Bart Mastronati, who is he? <laughs> I am a filmmaker. Uh, I've made two feature films, uh, Vindication and Tales of Poe, which has two of our Friday the 13th stars in there. Uh, uh, Michael Verratti knows because uh, he's part of Tales of Poe. Uh, also with Alan Rokelli too. Um, and uh, also I'm a full-time professor of cinematography at the New York Film Academy here in Los Angeles. And I have my own photography business. And I am the biggest Friday the 13th fan out. One of the biggest, I should say. Fabulous. Go check out Bart's photography page because it is Thirst City. It's gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous, sexy photos all over the place. And, and skilled, skilled photographer. Wonderful. And Thank Michael, I refresh everybody who you are. You're the man who funds the scary movies by making Hallmark movies. <laughs> well, you know, the reality is uh, over the long career of holiday films I've done, I've only done one actual Hallmark movie. I just think it's become a catch-all uh, for that style of film. But it is true outside of my life here in the world of fright, I do write a lot of holiday rom-coms. Most recently, I co-wrote Netflix's Christmas with You, starring Freddie Prinze Jr. and Amy Garcia, uh, which I'm proud to say, now that the season is over, was in the top 10 in 63 different countries. So, you know, it's a good way to kick Woo. off the new year. Uh, fans of horror know me for a variety of things. As Bart mentioned, I was part of the team of Tales of Poe. I, I wrote Dreams, which he directed, which is the third segment in the anthology. Uh, I have... I'm on Boulay Brothers Dragula, which I also write and direct for. I co-host things with Peaches Christ. I, you know, you see me around. People are tired of me. Why am I here, Patrick? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what I wanted. I wanted old, tired queens to talk about this old, tired movie that's <laughs> so old it's probably in black and white. It's from the last millennial. It's like a thousand years old. Anyway, May 7th, 1980, this movie debuted and changed my life anyway. That's for damn sure. Um, so... Before we get into the movie itself, I just thought, you know, we should follow camp traditions and start things with a sing-along. The River of Jordan is deep and wide. Oh, that's right. Not singing. And honey on the other side. Well, I would like to be the bad guy. It's girls like you two Yes. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> well, I would like to be the bad girl at camp if possible. And the other song I think was Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, is it? Dooley, yeah. Yes. Hang Down Your Head, Crime. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, wholesome opening. Nice, wholesome public domain opening. Absolutely. Yes. So the listeners, my longtime listeners know my story, so I don't want to lead with that. We'll come back to that. I want to know, like, how were you two introduced to it? And what was the first impressions of it? What, what, why are you hooked on this movie? 
Well, I know Bart's origin story with this is particularly good, so I'm going to kick it to him first. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so my introduction to Friday the 13th when I was a kid um, was... I remember I was too young to go to the, the movies at the time. So when Friday 13th came out in 1980, all I remember is seeing the sheet poster in the newspaper clippings. And I have to tell you, it honestly, it scared me as a kid. Uh, movie posters then were so good. Um, Friday the 13th was one of them because it was a silhouette and inside the silhouette was the counselors and this full moon and a dripping bloody knife. And it wasn't until Friday the 13th, the final chapter that my dad, that I asked my dad if I could go see it in the movie theater. And, um, <laughs> reluctantly he agreed. Um, and he was just like, all right, we'll go. And, um, we went and it was at the Elmwood movie theater and Queens Boulevard. Uh, hey, and yep. I, I remember where we sat and I sat there and, uh, this big hulking man wearing a mask was running around killing these newbly little teenagers or I don't know, college students, I guess. I don't know. And, um, I, instantly fell in love and that's how I knew I was gay. It was Jason. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a good mama's boy. He loves his mother. Uh, but he does. Uh, you know what? He, he took he care does. of himself. He was in the woods. So his, you know, he was raised right. Michael Myers was always self-sufficient. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, I would say, I don't know what it was. I think for me, uh, the Friday the 13th movies were, um, you know, they were, they were much more visceral. Uh, and I kind of latched onto that, you know, you had this, it's a Greek tragedy in my opinion, this mother, this, uh, prophetic old man runs around. It's a full moon. It's rain. It's, it's, uh, it's the woods. So it's, it's the sense of a maze. People know where they are. Um, and then, you know, this woman comes in and starts hacking them up and it's all for the, her child, almost very Medea like, uh, but, um, and so to me, that was the draw was this kind of visceral thing. I'd never seen anything like it before. And when I, you know, when I finally saw it, I was just like latched onto it. And it's the only series that does this for me. Like, I love horror movies, but I would say it's the Friday the 13th series that's done that. Me too. Me too. Michael. I think that if you grew up during a certain time, it was hard to escape this franchise. I mean, it pervaded pop culture in the way that... It, it was, you know, Jason was on MTV and a guest on Arsenio Hall. And when you're like a kid, uh, that really saturates into your pop culture consciousness. I did not see uh, the movies at the theater first time around, but I did discover them on late night cable. Probably as with most things, I owe Rhonda Shear my first experience to uh, Friday the 13th because I watched so much USA Up all night. I saw a lot of movies on there. Uh, and at the time I didn't know they were edited because it was just the idea that these films were scary. And like you had this person telling you they were scary and I was young enough to just believe her. And then when I finally rented them and I was like, Oh, this is everything I'm missing, you know? Uh, but it took me a slight, uh, beat to connect with Jason, because I think if you draw the parallel between the universal monsters and the mon and the slashers of the eighties, Freddy's more of the Dracula. He talks, he's dynamic, he's out there. He certainly was the bigger personality, whereas Jason is more like the Frankenstein monster, lumbering and silent. But when you look at, and, and going to what Bart said, 
Jason's movies certainly have more pathos, shockingly, because there is this underlying current of a, of a, a creature in many ways motivated by the loss of his mother. And what I liked as I discovered the franchise, as well as I was discovering my own interest in horror and going back and looking at Grindhouse movies of the 70s, was that Friday the 13th was more in that spirit than a lot of the slashers of the 80s that we got. It took chances. It was willing to be sleazy. It was willing to break the rules that we expect of it. And so I fell in love with it, not just for the reasons that we all fell in love with it, but I liked that every so often it was like, but also you fuck what you know, and here's something else. And that made, that really spoke to me. Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right. So my story, like it's particular, it's not just the franchise itself. It's this particular movie. This movie is touchstone for me because this movie broke me and put me back together again. And I told Adrian King this at the, at the camp when I met her and she was just like, you're an insane person, but I love you. <laughs> <laughs> what, what you see, Bart's the key. So once you mentioned Bart to her, she just lights up <laughs> and she's your best friend. So, so, so I, I got to her. tell this long, boring story, but, um, I grew up like so many kids in New York, I grew up on the 4:30 movie. It's Edgar Allan Poe week. It's Giant Monster Week. So I love my monster movies and I love scary movies. And it was my 10th birthday when this came out. It was the, the, this came out the day after my birthday, and I had seen the commercials and I knew it was coming and it was scary. And I'm figuring I'm 10 now. I can go see a scary. Mo-. And my mom also liked them. And somehow I convinced my mom to take not just me but a whole bunch of the neighborhood kids to see Friday the 13th. <laughs> On a Monday night, we were the only people in the theater except for one other woman. And we were not prepared <laughs> for what we got. We grew like we like I said, we grew up in 1960s, you know, giant bug movies and things and things like that. Or um and even the poster, you mentioned the poster. I'd seen the poster. People say, Wasn't that a clue what you were getting into? And I said, No, because did you see the movie posters back then? Like you could take the shittiest, shittiest monster movie and come up with the greatest poster, and when you go see it, it's a guy in a rubber mask. So I, this was not even on my radar. So I'm not kidding. My innocence died watching this movie I can clock the moment too. And we'll get to it when we get there. And afterwards we became neighborhood pariahs. What were you thinking Lillian? (laughs) (laughs) But as in so many cases, trauma could turn into fascination. Yes. Yes. Like you, like you, Patrick, it was, um, it, it took away the innocence. I was seeing very visceral things. I was seeing nudity. I was hearing language, horror. It was just, it was a whole other thing outside that I've never seen before. So uh, when I saw the final chapter at 12, it just, it took the virginity away. This first movie, there's a senselessness to it. Like if you, when you're seeing it the first time and you don't know if you're coming into this completely cold, these kids did nothing wrong. They're just, what's happening? Why is this happening? They're having the most mundane day. You know, there's no plotting in between them. They're not up to anything. They're not scheming. They're just trying to get through their workday and ha- relax at night. That's all they want to do at this new job. They're a nice bunch of characters. They're right. There's no villains among them. There's nobody to hate. Like, why is this happening to these nice people? And that was terrifying for me. People will often say when I tell the story, like, what was your mother thinking? Why didn't she take you out of that theater? And honestly, I don't know because there was a sea of 
traumatized children crying in the theater. But it was it was also the seventies. You know, it was the, the coming off the seventies. We're all free range children. It's like you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. I'll put a hair on your chest. But I'm glad she didn't because if she didn't, I would not be sitting here with this podcast, and I'll probably not be the horror fan that I am today because this was my gateway into it. it. Became a fascination and a strength test. Like when these when the new movies would come and be like, can I get through this one? Can I? Get, I don't think I can get. It. And I did it. I got through. Hooray! Good for me. It was every every time one came out, it was another. It was another growing up moment. Yes, it was. Well, you both tapped into something that I find particularly interesting with a lot of people who end up in the genre, because I think there are two things that can happen. You see a movie that traumatizes you and you run away from horror and you're one of those people that's like, I don't like horror and I don't watch horror ever. Or as you both said, you start obsessing about it and you start kind of going back and it sort of becomes that thing where you need to conquer the fear. And then instead of in more than just conquering the fear, you, you obsess over it and make it part of your DNA. And, uh, back when I was hosting dead for filth and talked to so many queer creators, the commonality of this thing, the idea, cause I was a little scaredy cat. I used to run and turn off the television. If the music got too tense yes. while my poor parents were watching TV, I watched most yeah. of this Friday the 13th with my orange sweatshirt over my head. I turned the so, television yeah, right off there with when, the com- when the coming attraction came on, on Friday the 13th. I remember that. <laughs> Ding dong, Patrick from the future here. Since the TV commercial came up, I want to say that I also saw the TV commercial when I was a kid. And here's the thing about the TV commercial. If you see the trailer, you get an idea of what the movie's about. There's the narrator counting one, two, three, all the way up to 12. And you see the weapons and you see the screaming and you get an idea of what the movie's about. The TV commercial gave you none of that. One, two, three, four. Friday the 13th. You may only see it once, but that will be enough. Friday the 13th, rated R. Yes, you had the guy counting one, two, three, four, but the clips were so short. It could have been about anything. You just see people screaming and like reacting to something, but you don't know what. And since slasher movies didn't exist, you wouldn't say, oh, that's a slasher. It could have been a monster movie. It could have been a vampire movie. It could have been anything, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to see it so badly. And I just wanted to toss that in back to the show. So it's interesting that we all ended up embracing this and like, look, this is our jobs to some extent. Absolutely. I was watching the movie last night and it's, it's fun to revisit it now. Like it, I was w- watching this, this, uh, the Blu-ray, that that wonderful Blu-ray disc set that came out with the extended cut version. And I'm going, man, after years and years and years and years of watching it on shitty VHS pen and scan and on TV, I'm like, this is a really well put together movie. It's very pretty. Like it's so well shot. So much of it. Like I'm thinking like that mirror lake shot with Adrian in the canoe at the end is just stunning. And the music, it's just, it's, and you, it's like that nightmare is over and you, you're kind of in the boat with her looking at it. And it's sad at that moment because all these kids are dead and you realize that they're dead. And this woman who did this for her son is now dead. And it's like, I don't know. There was something very uh, drawing on that one for me. 
It's over. The movie's over. Everything's okay now. The movie's <laughs> over. You can't relax now. Nothing's gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> sidebar. One of the things that I love about that last scene, since we all love Adrian K, we love this last shot. Um, that that shot packs a wallop even out of context. I had one of my one. I used to have these huge Halloween parties. Shocker. Of course, and being me, I can't just go in for normal Halloween parties. It's got to be everything top notch. So I put together these, um, you know, little edit videos that ran in the background of like the best parts of horror movies just to have on TV and the background. And that scene in the canoe was there. And I remember my friend Christy. Hi, Christy. I know you're listening. She does not watch horror movies and she's very, very, very smart and very, very classy. She just happened to walk by and she's watching me watch the screen. She goes, honestly, I wouldn't sit out there in a canoe like that. I'd be afraid that somebody would jump up out of the water. <laughs> she didn't know. She timed it perfectly. Like, you're right, Christy. <laughs> One of the things I hear people not us complain about, they said that the characters are boring and nothing happens. I don't think that's true. Um, but I do think from a writing perspective, of course, we know that the script was scant because they admit it. Adrian King will tell you that when they arrived on set, they didn't have a full script yet. And they were figuring out the rest of the movie while they were there. Now, what I think is particularly significant about this, whereas I would like hold other filmmakers accountable later, is like we have decades of slasher movies that if we arrived on a set and we had like half a slasher movie, we probably could muddle yeah, the through because we have yeah. every trope that we could exploit. It it wouldn't be original, but we at least could make it happen. That didn't exist in 1979 when they went to go. So they inadvertently, while figuring out the script, also created what would become the blueprint for everybody else. And so I think that's really significant. But I, I so I guess that, you know, are some of the characters loosely written? Sure. But I think that you point out how much all of these young actors bring to it. I would not say they're boring. I think there's a lot of vitality and I think there's a lot of vivaciousness to each of them um, that we actually don't get probably in some of the sequels with some of the, the fodder, if you will. But here they're all more fully realized Watching it last night, I realized I have a thing, and I guess maybe it's just the era that I grew up in. I like these horror movies that are happening on a nothing special day to nothing special people, and since this horrible thing comes out of nowhere, like Halloween, like Black Christmas, it's a mundane day. Yeah, and the only thing significant about the, that day at, at, at right. Black Christmas is that it's Christmas, and not, that guy not showing up. It would just be well, a boring he, day. Even the title of this movie. Yeah, even the title of this movie is something of a misnomer that's like, you know, pervaded over the course of the franchise. But it's Friday the 13th because mm -hmm. it's Jason's birthday, which, of course, we associate it with Friday the 13th, a superstitious day. But next year, it's going to be Saturday the 13th, and it's still going to be Jason's birthday. You know, so no, it's not that's how it just works. kind it's of not how it works. You don't understand. Yeah. It's New Jersey rules. <laughs> <laughs> I think what makes I think what for me when I was watching it um, with the characters and this I attribute to Sean Cunningham's directing is that it's almost a documentary where you're kind of seeing everything through the the point of view of the camera a lot. So we're just kind of observing these people as they go about their day. And that's why I didn't kind of find them. I really like them. I actually do feel bad uh, when they're all kind of knocked off because like you get Brenda, who's like, she's like this vegan girl and she's like kind of really cool about it. And then you get Nettie, who's like <laughs> the practical joker and Marcy and 
um, the Kevin Bacon character. And yeah, I don't know. There was, it was just, they kind of set them up real nicely and uh, they all meet within that 24 hour period. And within 24 hours, the whole thing is flipped over. And then the, to go back to what Michael was just saying is that it just happens to be on a Friday, the 13th on a full moon in a thunderstorm, all the elements just kind of come together, which creates the horror of it all. And then, you know, why she picks Friday the 13th, it just happens to be because she, you know, uh, when we get into to mom's story, but to me, it was always kind of documentary where Halloween is very cinematic and has a different style to it. But Friday the 13th, I kind of really enjoy. I love it. Go on what you were saying. Like this, you, I always have to look to when a movie like this, particularly when it's the beginning of a franchise or just something standalone that has this significant cultural impact. I always go, why? What was going on at the time? Because there's always some, there's always some connection, you know, like all those Exorcist movies like the, and the crazy baby movies from the early '70s. It's coming off the hippie movement. Parents don't know what the kids are doing. They're all hippies and they're taking drugs and they're going to weird concerts and they look like girls. And but this being in that era where these serial killers were all over the news and were just popping up in people's lives, having mundane days and turning everything upside down as Bart said, that this was a very real fear. Okay. And nowadays serial killers are, you know, they're everywhere. There's tons of talk of serial killers. All people talk about serial killers. They're very, very popular, but back then it was different. And it wasn't like we talked about them all the time, not in this weird abstract clinical way that we talk about them today. It was happening right in front of us. And it was all happening at the same time. And then newspapers ate it up. We're talking son of Sam Hillside, Strangler, Torso Killer, Green River Killer, they're all going on at the exact same time. So this was a daily flood of serial killers. And, and for Barton, us, we both grew up in New York City. So Son of Sam was happening in our backyard. So the idea that you could just be having a regular day with your new friends at work and somebody shows up and kills all of you was very, very real. And that's why I think the documentary style plays into it. Like, all oh, these poor kids. Yeah, that's, they just were having a normal day. And I think what, what Michael was saying... Yeah plays into like this since this one was uh like the first two were filmed in the east coast so they're mostly new york actors so they're bringing theater experience to it so like the later series that everybody's playing a type now we have the types that are in this movie there's, there's the bimbo there's the, the rich bitch there's the, the goofy guy they're all playing that instead of playing people mm-hmm. and these are just kids that just like uh, th- th- there's little clues to things like ned uh jack says to um Marcy at one point, she's like, oh, what are you going to give Ned another one of your motherly lectures? And when I watched <laughs> it last night, I said, all in all of her scenes with Ned, you can see her mothering him like, Nettie, Nettie, no, not now. Not now. The cop is here. She's, it's not spoken, but it's there. So there's a richness that's going on that's just not being said out loud. And I enjoy that. Well, it's interesting, right? Well, and since you you sort of uh, good-naturedly ribbed the, the rom-com side of my career at the beginning, I'll point out what's interesting when something blazes a trail. I am jealous of your rom-com career, so please continue. Well, no, no, and I appreciate that. I was, I was not, I didn't take it in any bad way. But what I was going to say is when you have something that blazes a trail, like when Harry met Sally, the thing is, is when Harry met Sally is what people always talk about is the DNA of, of rom-coms that came after. But the thing is, is if you watch when Harry met Sally versus any other rom-com, it doesn't play by any of the rules that, that then were established later. And that happens here too. Everyone attributes the original Friday the 13th for creating all of the archetypes. But when you watch the movie, they're not really there. It's almost like a studio looked at this movie that was made by independent filmmakers with sort of an independent spirit and tried to dissect what made it work and created a pattern in a lab that we then prescribed to. But then 
in many ways, it doesn't actually apply to the movie that they they looked to for that inspiration. I mean, Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson in Scream created that whole list of rules, which we all just sort of wholesale now rattle off as shorthand for horror. And most of them are really shaking our true. heads for the listeners. Just, we're all shaking our heads. No, they, they don't. No, because like, obviously in this movie, Alice smokes dope. Jamie Lee Curtis smokes dope in Halloween. Yeah. Alice smokes dope and is implied to be sexually active and has sexual wants and needs. So it's like she can't be the virginal character that they they claim is the trope because she's not. And that's okay. Yeah. One of the other things I love about this particular movie and one of the reasons that it still scares me because it's one of the few slasher movies that if you don't know, you can't pick out who's going to survive this thing. No, Alice doesn't have like this yeah. big rich backstory. Like, oh my, my I, whatever. She's not in this big fight with her boyfriend. That the most of the movie's focusing on. She's just another character. So you don't know who's gonna die at any time, which adds to the stress that first time through for me. And right. what I also love to somebody pointed this out. Uh, Tara Gardner pointed wisely pointed this out last night. Is that for so many of those last scenes that I know people complain about, which I'll get into, Alice. The character doesn't know she's in a horror movie. There's that whole scene where Bill has gone off to fix the generator, and it's a long scene of her making coffee with no music, not telling you how to feel. She doesn't know she's in a horror movie, and that's what makes it great. I know I get ripped on this. I love that scene when she is, the camera comes in, the camera follows her back, it tracks back, and it's handheld, obviously. You could clearly see the closer we go into her close up, she knows there is something really wrong. It's not her making coffee. It's her doing something because she's nervous. And as she's getting more and more nervous, they're all gone by this point. She's the only one left and she doesn't know it yet. And she would have no reason to be like, oh, there's a serial killer out there. There would be no reason. She is just anybody who's grown up in camps. know. okay, I got to go to the outhouse. I just walked there, you know. So yeah. that scene with the coffee and for there me are scary was, noises in the woods at night that are nothing. So yeah, yeah like, and so. what Michael said before, we've gotten to these points where these tropes are now upon us. But if you worked in a summer camp, it was normal for you to walk out of one cabin and go over to another cabin. You know, so for her, when she goes to make that coffee, there is something wrong. There's something foreboding there, and she knows it. And that that was the scene of the coffee, and that's why I actually liked it. And I love that we don't get the backstory on her the way we do with like like say. Laurie Strode or um, Sydney, where they have to become the protagonist, where Alice just happens to be, but we don't know. And I agree. I think it, it adds like, ooh, who's going to survive? And I think that was the magic of the Friday the 13th at a certain point. It was like, who, who, who's going to survive and who's going to die? One of the um, things that I'm going I'm to segue into is that that happened that is uh, emphasized in the scene. Uh, I love the use of darkness in this movie. A lot of later horror movies, when it's dark, it's blue. Yeah. So we can see everything, but the character's not yeah. supposed to. But this is like w- the dark is used so well. And I've been to that camp and I've been there at night. And uh, I went there, I think, with Joe Borelli the second time. And he said, the dark here is hungry. Mm. Like it eats light. Like you, you have these little pockets of light in the woods. And But OK, I have to get over there. But you don't know what's between there. there, there and you can't really tell how far it is. It looks it always looks a million times closer than it is. OK, I have to tell. OK, while I was at Camp Crystal Lake for real with Amy. Hi, Amy. Um, <laughs> it's night. They were going to screen the movie by the lake. It's freezing cold. It's so cold. So we were just going to give up and go home. And I said, before I get in the car, I just want to go run to the outhouse. I'll be right back. Back. (laughs) 
<laughs> Patrick. Hold on, hold on. It gets worse. So I go trudging off to the outside. I'm like, okay, there's the, the, the cabin I'm in is this pool of light. The movie's over there. I can see that pool of light. And that means the outhouses are somewhere in between. And once you get outside that pool of light, it, none of it bleeds. It's just black. Yes. And I didn't bring a flashlight and I'm fumbling around. And I'm like, okay, this, you're an idiot. You just wandered into the woods at Camp Crystal Lake, said, I'll be right back to go pee. And they're setting up the movie by the lake and they have the DVD and they put the DVD on. It's just sitting on the, um, what do you call it? The, the, the menu, the menu. What's under the menu? <laughs> I'm going to die out here. I tripped. I fell. I did everything wrong. My top came off. <laughs> but the darkness is so masterfully using this. And that pops up in this scene. She's doing, she's making that coffee. She goes into that pantry and that pantry is pitch black. Yeah. And I didn't expect her to come back out. <laughs> and she does. The movie plays with you like that. Um, there's that inky blackness to everything. There's those wonderful scenes. Like there's a scene where she's fleeing Pamela for the first time when she runs up and you just see like her little white shirt disappearing into yeah, she disappears into that darkness. That's exactly how it is up there. Like to be just vanish after 10 feet. Well, it's interesting because this is something that both Bart and I both can speak to. I guarantee that happened because they didn't have money. And so what happens when you are an independent filmmaker and you have to go without you, it's like necessity breeds invention. And so they realized what they didn't have and they used it to their advantage. And that's what a good artist does. And that's why some of the smaller budget films tend to, in some ways, go to more creative lengths because you can't just throw a wad of cash at it. I guarantee if they had the budget of the sequels, those scenes would have been lit, but they didn't yeah, because yes. they couldn't. Yeah. So they couldn't, they couldn't afford the lights. So they just didn't use them. And someone smartly, Sean Cunningham was just like, well, just let, let her get lost yeah. in the dark. And um, it works to the, uh, it works to the film. It really does. Cause then by the time you get to part two, they have a budget. Yeah. So you can see the, the forest does get lit up. One of the things that I also love about this movie that's present in like the first four, but disappears after a while is the feeling of being watched. Yeah. All the time. That feeling of stalking. Cause once Jason becomes a character, he becomes a Jack in the box. He could, you're following him a lot. So you kind of always know where he is. And, but this, she spends a long time just sitting and watching and sitting and watching. She's not killing them right away. And that's scary to me. Mm. It's interesting, right? Because I think it also works again because it's an indie film. We always talk about these movies that like like Blair Witch or the first Friday the 13th that when you see it, especially if you see it on an old VHS, you feel like you're seeing something that you shouldn't. And that's part of the allure. Um, what And part of what that is, is I feel like there's the reverse sensation that something is watching you that shouldn't, you know, this this kind of exchange of something that feels very organic and voyeuristic and as as these franchises grow it's hard to organic make something feel organically uneasy i mean like not there not that is not to say there are not amazing big budget horror movies there certainly are and there are many that i love but it's that thing where um you can't commodify an organic feeling if that makes sense and i think that they drop the pov after a while because 
it gets to a point where it like if the you know by part seven which i do love part seven but they blow up a house with this huge like jean-claude van damme like you know pyrotechnics explosion that's sort of like well you don't believe that there's just a single person in the woods watching because you know it's a fancy expensive camera because they're about to use a fancy expensive explosion so i don't know maybe i'm just <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and going on what you're saying, the point of view doesn't work for when you know who the killer is because it's you, you have the point of view to add mystery. So if you know it's Jason, it's not as much fun to have that point of view. Right. Like in, in this one, you don't know who you are or what you are. Is this a human? What is this? I don't know what's happening. I don't know what movie this is. And plus, in the later editions of the movies, Jason is now the star. Jason himself is the draw. And you're not going to cut your star out of your movie to give him a point of view shot. That's not what the people paid to see. They give like little hints, but the the whole purpose of the, for me, the point of view was when I was watching, it's like, who is this? And why is this so premeditated? This is kind of creepy because she's watching them and yeah, she's studying them and she's looking to see if they're alone because every time, most of the time when she is watching them, they're together. It's only until I think after their, um, little time at the, the, at the, at the dock when Nettie fakes his fake uh, drowning is when they really start to separate. And that's when she really gets the understanding, like, okay, I could get them Fuck, now. That never, okay, Bart, hold on. You, I have a background in criminal psychology. I was, I was, my goal was to join the FBI and become a profiler. I'm really good at it. And you threw out something just really obvious that it never, ever occurred to me that Nettie's drowning is also throwing gasoline on the fire. Yes. You're making fun of my little boy. Yes, that's that's exactly. And she goes and she I don't know if it was written in the script, but he's the one that goes first. You're right. And I think that. Right? Wow, wow, the, wow, wow, wow. 40 years. This movie <laughs> still surprising if me. We, if we want to <laughs> if we want to get a little serious for a moment, we don't know if she was going to kill them, because if we watch if we watch Friday the 13th part two, Jason does not avenge his mother's death. All he does is he kills Alice and it's five years later. They're already at the camp and he's watching them. It's not until the sheriff finds the cabin in the woods, sees the decapitated mother. That's what sets Jason off because now they're going to come after me. So he goes after her then with Mrs. Voorhees. The drowning, I think, is what kind of sets it off to some degree. And she's watching that. And I think that's where it goes. OK, since we're here. I've done this in the past before. I did this to Michael Myers in the original Halloween. I do. I mapped that mapped at a criminal profile for Pamela Voorhees. Uh, because one of the things with criminal profiling is that you, you look at the patterns. Why does it, why is this happening now? What triggered this? What, why is this crime different from this crime and this crime and this crime? So watching it initially, but going all the way back to the first kill, the kills that everybody forgets, the kills in 1957, like why these two and then nothing? So it's like, okay, the obvious answer is like these two were the ones that let Jason drown the year before. I noticed something this time through. There's this long cold open where, 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 where don't, we know we're at a camp. We're getting the, we're not really focused on anybody yet. We're seeing the, um, the campfire, but we're seeing somebody walking through the cabins, checking on the kids. And I'm like, why is this? Initially I was like, why is this here? Why do we get this? But I'm like, she's still a mom. <laughs> she's still a mom. She's going to check on those kids before she does the dirty work. But, um, the boy that she kills first, she gut stabs him, which she doesn't do anybody else. Um, you do that to people you want to suffer because it's not going to kill you really quick. So like, she's particularly mad at him and not her. So I'm thinking he was involved. Like, yeah. And the, uh, this goes more into headcanon, but like, why would they hire him back? 
well, either one of them back. So I'm like, okay, he's connected to the camp. His rich parents are on the camp. He's the rich kid who's always there. So he's hired back and she sees him going off with this girl and she has to stop it. But what really hooked me was like, okay, we learned from Enos, the truck driver, that they're, uh, they, were, they tried to open, there were fires. They tried to open again and the water was bad. And now all these years later, we're going to open it again. Why the escalation? The sudden escalation. Why'd you go from a fire starter to killing people? What was it about this particular day in this particular time in this particular group of people that pushed her buttons to the point that she made this enormous leap from criminal mischief to mass murder? Because in my heart of hearts, I do not believe that Pamela Voorhees woke up that morning with the intention to go to Camp Crystal Lake and kill every single person there. Now, don't get me wrong. Pamela Voorhees woke up that morning with the intention of going to Camp Crystal Lake and starting some kind of shit. But I don't think the shit that she had on her mind that morning was mass murder. Because she's not even she's not a serial killer. People get this wrong all the time. Like she's a serial killer follows a pattern. But this she's a spree killer. She snapped. What caused Pamela to snap on Friday June 13th, 1980. And yes, Bart said it is her son's birthday. That's that's one layer of the trigger to full moon. But it's Annie. Annie's the one who sets her off. Like she gets this girl in the in the Jeep. And we've seen, like we we were, uh, this movie, Janet Lee's Annie. It's like, you know more about her than anybody else in the movie. And she's so robust and so vibrant and so Phyllis and Joie de Vivre. And she also can't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so it's only a 10 mile drive to the camp and you know this whole time she's the little bits that we get she's talking about that she's going to be cooking for the kids at Camp Crystal Lake what was Pam's job she's the chef she's the cook yeah. and she's like all of a sudden she sees herself and Annie and that's got to stop and even with the okay even with Annie's body Annie's body she kills Annie's body in the woods but it drags her back to the jeep why she could have just left her in the woods she's special that's why I keep her with me. She's different. Ding dong, Patrick from the future here. It occurs to me as I'm editing this episode, I think that Mrs. Voorhees would have been perfectly contented to stop the killing after Annie. Her job was done. She killed herself in the past to prevent the past from recurring again in the future. Sort of madness logic. The killing could have stopped there had Ned not faked that drowning. Poor little Nettie, who was overcompensating all day because he doesn't want to be seen as the fifth wheel to perfect couple Jack and Marcy like he probably always is back in his regular life. That little practical joke wasn't just making fun of Jason's drowning. It forced Pamela to relive the trauma of that drowning, which is even worse. And had she not killed Ned, she wouldn't have gotten caught in the cabin when Jack and Marcy came back to screw and the whole rest of the movie just falls into place. Back to the show. Then she saw them making fun of her little boy drowning. That's not funny. That's not funny. And she spent all day watching them and building up stories in her, her head about them. It's, it's scary. Well, it, it's interesting, right? Because when we think of Friday the 13th, it's often framed as, as a kickstart of the slasher. It's a proto slasher. It leads to this whole generation of slasher movies that follow. But the one thing that I don't really hear people talk enough about is that in many ways it's also a natural extension of the hag exploitation film and that's a term i don't love myself but it's a quick shorthand to explain that it is this, in this kind of grand tradition of baby jane sunset boulevard you know uh hush, one hush, last Charlotte. guess before you croak 
for the for right. the old timers. Well, yeah. and there and there are the two sides of that. Obviously, there's the idea of this this actress, a grand dame of stage or screen, who comes back to do a horror movie because that's the role they got. And you can talk about the mechanics and the industry of that, but also it's the idea of the the world vilifying the older woman and the older body. And, and when you look at these things like sunset Boulevard, yes, you can read that Norma Desmond is, is not mentally there, but it's the world that failed her. She was promised a thing that never was delivered. Baby Jane was promised a thing that was never delivered and it broke them. Pamela Voorhees never got justice. And so it broke her. This is a movie that is both a slasher film, but is also a exploitation movie in the way that she did what she had to do because no one else was going to do it for her because the world doesn't help women and it doesn't help older women. And there we are. And so what you're talking about like these things especially like the idea of having Annie in the car and Annie being the chef I'm being replaced Ned fake drowning they're making fun of my son who I didn't get justice for that is the grant that is a Norma Desmond that is a baby Jane Hudson and I think that that's really interesting and we never talk about that avenue of the film because it's so easy to be like it's a slasher movie and I'm like ah but it's also in the tradition of this this I think having I think having it as a mother and a female killer here changes the dynamics of it Um, because by this point I think we've already had Texas Chainsaw, Black Christmas, Halloween, and these are all male slashers. And here we get a mystery. We're not knowing who it is. And then it turns out to be a mom who's, yeah. who is taking, who's, you know, making sure that this doesn't happen again. And and then to add insult to injury for her, her child has a handicap, um, which again is kind of like part of the curse. Um, and this, this downfall of this, of this woman who is not given the justice that she deserves for it. And it's a, it's sad because he, he drowns and they weren't paying attention because they were, you know, they were off doing other things like sex or drugs and things like that. So she blames them for that. And she's the adult. So she now believes that she knows better and doesn't want to see it again. Yeah. Okay. The other star of the film, Tom Savini. Oh, wow. Yeah. I also am fascinated by the restraint the movie shows because we know it's Tom Savini. He's already done Dawn of the Dead. He's already done The Prowler. And both of those special effects in that are insane, incredibly graphic, incredibly gory. So while the stuff in here is is great and gory, there's also restraint. We don't see Ned get killed. We don't see Brenda get killed. We don't really see Steve get killed. Um, So when it's there, it's shocking. I remember that when the arrow comes up through Kevin Bacon's neck, that was when I'd had enough and started to cry. <laughs> this it was too much for me. And it's a shocking, it's so, it's the close up. And for me, it's not just that it's gory and bloody. It's that it's this loving close up of the arrow coming through his neck. And the fact that it doesn't just spring up through his neck, it comes up slow and we get to watch a twist. And then in this new version we get this extra few seconds where you see the light go out of Kevin Bacon's eyes, which you don't see with anybody else. And it's horrifying. So visceral and personal and awful. And uh, Marcy in the shower. Oh, that is brutal. <laughs> this right here is the moment when my innocence died. I was never the same after this moment. I didn't know that that was possible. Like, it's like I remember thinking, oh, my God. I remember realizing, oh, my God, it's an axe. And then I'm thinking, oh, it's going to get in her chest. And I was like, in her face, in her face. And also the cruelty of the movie and that it gives you that slight pause that you don't get in slasher movies. That the axe comes down and then it cuts back to the light swinging. And you think it's done. It's not done. Then you see her fall back. 
to see what's actually happened. So you have to give that, oh, okay, it's over. We're not going to see it. Yes, we are. And just that little pause was just enough time for viewers like me who had their orange sweatshirts over their face and were covering their eyes so they didn't see this, had the opportunity to go, oh, it's over. Take the sweatshirt down and get traumatized for life. Yeah. I, I told I told Janine Taylor that too at the camp too. I'm like, oh, you, you're the reason my innocence died. You're the death of my childhood. <laughs> she said, you're not the first. I'm like, I'm sure I'm not. <laughs> I love that you said Tom Savini showed restraint in this movie because I'm sure, you know, to parents who took their kid, they, they would say otherwise. But it's true, right? I think the Tom Savini that we know of today and the legacy, but... It's, it's interesting because we're looking at this at the lens of time and as people who sort of deify these movies and like we obsess about them and idolize them. But when this movie came out, Tom Savini was not yet Tom Savini in, in that way. And so it's sort of like I kind of get how this is the beginning. Uh, and it's also like you don't record Sergeant Peppers the first time out. Right. Like you uh, no. you do. Uh, I don't know. I, I, he's always he's always great. I, I just think that it's I, I have no no full thought on this other than it's like it's a masterpiece and then there's a masterpiece to come. Like he's just like merely showing us like the the creep show, like creep show afterwards is like a full on circus compared to. Oh, this. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I just realized the Prowler came after this. So I'm a little off because I mean, that maybe he he's that the kills in that are just shockingly gruesome. Cause but, um, but there's also the, the, also for what it is, I think the fact that they're are just simple kills and it's not fancy devices or it's not dipping somebody's head in liquid nitrogen and smashing <laughs> on a counter that that also makes it real she's she's being very efficient and i think friday the 13th is one of the first slashers to really show that visceralness because texas chainsaw gives the illusion that you're seeing it black christmas doesn't show anything halloween is very restrained and then you get friday the 13th and that is where the box office i think kind of drew came in also because i think of savini's makeup effects here and in terms of restraining i think what they did was they they hit you in the beginning and then you don't see it again till annie and then you don't see it again till kevin bacon and then marcy and then they stop for a while till you see bill hanging up uh, and then it's her head and it just like they they picked moments when it was good to show it and keep that. Uh, are we going to see it? Or are we not going to see it? But then when they do deliver, oh, man, <laughs> that yeah. is like a it's like a slap in the face with an axe every time, every time. Still, I still get oogies whenever that's that scene's coming up. I'm like, don't go in there, honey, honey, don't go well, in there. What makes that scene so good is. It's such a buildup, but then she opens the curtain and you see the axe in a shadow come up behind her. And you're just like, oh, God. And then she turns around and this poor girl just screams knowing that she can't even run because she's trapped in a corner. And the thing, like you said, it hits the, the, the lampshade and then the next and you're like, OK, it's over. And then, boom, she like hits it. And then you get, if we can, Manfredini's score is just yeah really up there with John Carpenter's Halloween in terms of how he gets that rhythm moving and builds that suspense. I think sometimes it's his music that carries the film sometimes. Oh, absolutely. And and it, it you could dismiss it as uh, Psycho meets Jaws, but I said, what's wrong with that? It's perfect. This is perfect. And with the addition of that sound, like that, that signature sound, it's brilliant. One of my, one of my favorite scenes with the music tying in perfectly with the, um, with what you're seeing on screen is when Annie's in the Jeep and she says, Hey, isn't that the road to Camp yep. Crystal Lake back there? And it's just that two no dum dum. Yep. Hey, wasn't that the road up for Camp Crystal Lake back there? 
I think we better stop. is rising panic. It, it matches her rising panic. Like, holy shit, this is happening. Then when, and, and still in that scene, in that scene when she goes to chase her, does the music then shift to a very extreme string note, uh, uh, much uh, deeper in the string when it becomes her point of view and she goes after her. Listen to that music. It's He's so really good and he had nothing in terms of budget on that. Yeah, and honestly, how boring of the critics who try to knock it by saying it's Psycho meets Jaws. Because frankly, yes, this is an exploitation movie. So even the soundtrack is going to be exploitive. But when you're making a film like this, it, it, by combining those elements, you can create something wholly unique. And he did. Like, I mean, he redefined this whole franchise with his music. Yeah, and that's did. why, you know, there are things, I mean, by the time he does a disco soundtrack for part three, <laughs> we were just like, yeah, Harry, let's go. You I'm know? on board. I'm on board. <laughs> yeah. Like all the gays agree. Yeah. Um, and also, I also love that this is not something that doesn't happen in the later movies regarding the soundtrack. There are parts where there is no soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. We just let the forest be the soundtrack or just like when Ned's just walking along by himself, whistling, and you're just hearing the forest. I'm like, this is somehow even scarier because now you're not telling me what I'm supposed to feel. So, but the later movies, it's the soundtrack's always going. It's always dictating everything. And I like that it just leaves you hanging every now and then. I also want to say, no, you go. go. I was going to say, just a, one of my favorite beats in the movie is when Alice and Bill come in looking for Brenda and Bill goes, Alice, come here. And she pulls the bed sheet over and the axe is in there with the blood. What is going on? Then how he hits that music note because there's no music at that moment, and then it's just like ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. yep, 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 yep. That, oh, I, that's so on good. my list of one of my favorite musical moments. But uh, yeah, and also just tucking the axe into a bed like a baby is deranged. <laughs> it's deranged. <laughs> I love it. That's so creepy. Ding dong, Patrick from the future again. I wanted to bring up something that's popped up to me as I'm listening to the editing again that. Pamela is playing games with these people and it didn't really strike me before. She like, as the movie goes on, she's getting more and more confident, even though it's all off camera, you don't see anything just in the pattern of way things are laid out. Like she, by the time night falls, she's turning the power on and off. She's, she's turning the lights of the archer range on and off. She's turning the generator off to lure people out. Cause she knows if it turns the generator off, someone's going to come out, get it. And I can get them then. But here she's straight up playing a game. I picture her now watching Bill and Alice, Follow the trail of breadcrumbs that she's left to get to go check on everybody. And when they check in this room, they're going to find that axe. And I picture her peeking in the window and giggling. Her and Jason just giggling together, mother and son having a grand old time looking at these stupid evil counselors. And I mentioned the body hiding thing. Um, I've mentioned on the show before, like in that Halloween episode that I mentioned earlier, that there is a pattern in criminal psychology that when a killer hides a body, They've done something that they're ashamed of. And when it's on display, it's something that they're proud of or that but that person was special or symbolic. So they need to be on an altar. They need to be seen. Look at what I did. The second half of the movie, Mrs. Voorhees is only half hiding bodies. She's hiding bodies so that they're found. And that is horrifying and fascinating. I'm done now. Back to the show. And I also just want to throw some love to one of my other musical moments. One of the smaller musical moments is Crazy Ralph's final warning and subsequent exit. 
I think it's exquisite. And I also love that Alice has said several times, we need to call someone something's wrong. Yeah. It's just, hey, get out. <laughs> it's 10 miles to the nearest crossroads. Girl. She's just a girl. Yeah. Who cares? Who gets gay? Well, we don't know. We don't know. They didn't know. But she's yeah. right. She's right. And Bill talks her out of it because he's a man and she's just a girl. You're hysterical. But, um, one of the things I love, too, that is missing from the later movies is that we have this wonderful cast of rich side characters who don't die. Yeah. I love these side characters. I love Enos. One of the things that haunts me about Enos, the truck driver, one of the things that haunts me about Enos is I'm like, what is Enos thinking tomorrow morning when he reads the paper? Mm. Because they had this wonderful, I mean, when I was a kid, I thought he was mean. But now I watch him like, no, he's being a dad. He's being a dad. She's doing something stupid. She's hitchhiking for starters, which was dangerous. And yes, people did hitchhike back in the day. It was common. It was very common. And and he he walks into the ultimate, the the nightmare that we were warned about. And he's trying to keep her from that and keep her from going to this place. And he's just being a dad. And they do have this wonderful, warm little bond. And you think that this is going to be your star. And the movie takes it all away. And I always think about him the next day. Christy will wind up just like these folks, crazy and broke. He's been up there a year fixing up that place. He must have dropped $25,000. And for what? Ask anybody. Quit. I can't. Young kids, know it all. It's like my niece's heads full of rocks. You're an American original. I'm an American original. Yeah, I should. I should have. Should have just kept driving. Should have just kept that girl in the car. Who was the actress? Sally Ann Golden, who plays the waitress. Um, um, yeah, Sandy. Yeah. Steve, you know, like, oh, just two and a quarter. That's it. <laughs> what a great. And she was, I think, in uh, Alice, Sweet Alice. You can't go back out there in that rain. You want to get drowned? No, I've got to. I've got six new counselors up at camp. They are babes in the woods in every sense of the word. Well, they'll be okay if they know enough to come out of the rain. Well, what do I owe you? Just a night on the town. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I said you know it. That's okay. Two and a quarter, and that's it. No, she's wonderful, and it's a scene that technically doesn't need to be there because it doesn't add anything to the story, but she's such a rich character who tomorrow morning will be grieving for Steve, so it adds realism. But I would really like to throw some love to Ron Milky. Ron Milky, who plays the fabulous Officer Dorf. Officer Dorf brings some of the few moments of levity to this movie, and... It's such a breath of fresh air, too, even though he's an asshole, but it's it's, it's fun little scene. And Rod Milkey, I meet all the time at acting thingies because he's a New York actor who runs an acting studio, and I'll meet him at an acting convention. And every time I come by, I have to walk up and say, we ain't going to stand for no weirdness out here. And he goes, you know what? You do that every time. Every other mother, every other Friday the 13th fan comes up and says, Colombian gold man, grass, hash, the weed. Okay? Colombian gold man, hash, grass, the weed. Or Sit on it, Tonto. Sit on it, Tonto. But it's all great. I love him. He's fabulous. Yeah, I think about how 
we do lack that in a lot of slasher movies that become by the numbers. Uh, I recently revisited Silent Night, Bloody Night, the Mary Warnov movie. Uh, and there's a moment where before the first major kill happens, there's this couple that goes to the house and he stops and calls his daughter on the phone. Yes. Because it's made clear that he and his wife are divorced and she's staying with the wife. And then they go and get killed and they don't really need to add that because it really doesn't tell us more about the character. But in doing so, it makes the death more tragic. So by having these moments where like we see the waitress say bye to Steve or have the interaction with the truck driver, it humanizes these characters in ways that like the machine, that DNA of slasher that we talk about later where you set people up just to kill them, it takes away from because it, they're not just fodder, they're people. They're Teach, people who yep. people know. The, the waitress knows this person. The truck driver interacted with this person. It's Jess in Black Christmas finding out she's pregnant. We don't need that for the Billy storyline, but boy, does it add teeth to it when you know she's in the house, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. I also I, I also want to talk about Steve. I want to talk <laughs> about the rugged manliness that is Steve Christie. <laughs> that hot, hunky, 70s man. This really isn't your cup of tea, is it? Give you the reason? It's just a problem I have. It's nothing personal. You want to leave? I don't know. I may have to go back to California to straighten something out. Come on. Give me another chance. Stay a week. Help get the place ready. By Friday, if you're not happy, I'll put you on the bus myself. All right, Friday. I'll give it a week. I like that he's this guy who's so confident, even though he's clearly in over his head. But the fact that he leaves, he goes on this Homeric journey and has this long journey home with several stops. You know, he stops at the diner. He stops at the, the cop. We have where the cop picks him up and there's a cop scene in the car with the cop that you think he's going to come back and save the day. And then he doesn't. I remember thinking at the time, like, Steve's going to come back and say, when I was a kid, I'm like, he's got to come back. He's going to save everything. He's going to save her. Nope. Kept pulling that rug out. I just love that. The movie's so mean. It's so mean that way. But it's, it's like I said, adds teeth. And he's also a red herring at some point because he's not, you're not seeing oh, him yeah. for a while. So you're like, well, maybe it's yeah. him. Who, who knows? And then when you bring him back, you're like, I agree with you. He's like, oh, maybe he's going to save the day. And then suddenly he's like, oh, hi, what are you doing out in this mess? And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. There's a clue there. Yeah. Cause he's trying really hard because you kind of feel like he's, taking over from where his parents may have failed as a Christie. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to make it work this time. I'm going to do it. And not, not this time, never again. I think the one, a, a thing that is really prevalent in this movie that speaks to this, like Steve Christie trying to bring some glory back to the camp in some way, shape or form that we don't really get in the sequels, which is, in some ways kind of deranged considering that once the se once this franchise kicks into gear, there's like murders every other day is that crystal Lake feels very broken in the original movie. Like it is a broken place in the middle of nowhere, but then somewhere along the way, it becomes like a town that's like the suburbs. And I'm like, no, part of what really also makes crystal Lake so ominous in that original movie is like the little town that we see is like a general store in some weird wood building and Ralph wandering around and nothing else. And it's sort of like, why would you go out here? How could a business survive out here? Of course, people aren't going to send their kids to camp out here. These are just people that took the best job available at the time. Whereas by the time it's like camp forest with the, you know, forest green or green. forest hills or whatever it's called. Yeah. Later on, it's like, 
it might as well be, you know, like Parsippany, yeah. you know. I, I do like, like that. It's like the, um, that little bit you get to see of the town at the beginning when Annie's walking through the gas station, the diner, and the the, the, the old stone buildings. I'm like, this is just a quiet little town, but it's still quaint. There's a charm to it, which yeah. somehow it turns into this weird trailer park meth mess in the later movies. I'm like, how did this happen? Where, where did this Crystal Lake go? But that's like, I mean, even the town that we see, it's still like a whole lot it's of nothing. real America, it's like, There Michael, are a lot of those towns America. in the Midwest where it's just like, I know, I'm with you. Well, I'm just saying, like, when I went to college in Ohio, there were many little communities where it was like there was a street and there were a handful of houses and that was the town and you drove through and that was Crystal Lake. So the, you're right. It gets way more convoluted later. What you later. see is what you get to in the movie. Like the, the town, the, the town around the actual uh, Camp Nobi Bosco is this. It is this. It's still nothing. It's still rural. It's still quiet. It's just, what is it? Hope, New Jersey. In the hills, just, they like it that way. And that's cool. They're little pockets of the world like this. And that's, they have a dark, they had the bad thing that happened a long time ago and we don't talk about it and we don't go there. And we keep telling everybody not to go there, but you keep going there. But to be fair, if Ralph came screaming at any of us at a gas station, we'd be like, okay. But still, Marcy even has her her prophetic Greek dream. I've been afraid of storms ever since I was a little kid. No, really? (laughs) Yeah, I've had this dream about five or six times where I'm in a thunderstorm. Mm -hmm. And it's raining really hard. It sounds like pebbles when it hits the ground. I can hear it. I try to block out the sound with my hands, only it doesn't work. It just keeps getting louder and louder. And the rain turns to blood. And blood washes away in little rivers. And the sound stops. It's just a dream. Yeah, I know. Call it my <laughs> she dreams her own death. Where she di- yeah. shows her to shower dream. Where does she die? In the middle of a thunderstorm. <laughs> the shower. So in the shower. Okay, let's talk about Adrian King. No, I know you're both friends. Yes. and I, I, I think she's wonderful in this movie. She's so she's so um babe in the woods. <laughs> I mean, she's truly iconic. And yes, uh, Bart and I both are friends with her, so we're going to be extremely biased. But there is something to be said about well, going back to what you said at the beginning of the conversation. Alice isn't set up in the way that Laurie is. And I think, you know, I love all of the 70s and early 80s final girls in for different reasons. But Alice is sort of the one who wanders truly into a circumstance and fights like hell to survive. I mean, I love Sally Hardesty, but she survives on accident. I mean, in mm-hmm. and death death kind of is foisted upon Laurie Strode. Whereas it's like, if Alice doesn't do what she needs to do right now, she's not leaving. And, you know, there's no Dr. Loomis going to come kicking through the door. There's no, you know, truck driving by. She needs to fight. And it's sort of the fact that that could be anybody. And that's the horror of the movie. And I think that that's the delicate balance of how Adrian portrays Alice at the beginning of the movie, this doe-eyed girl, this art student who has a crush on a guy and her evening was not planned like this at all. Whose could be. And then she finds it within herself to make it out. And I think that that's, that's to show the transition of a person's, uh, 
of a person, like the test of someone's mettle in that way, but also stay true to the character. When she's fighting Pamela on the beach, I still believe she's that innocent girl who arrived at camp a few hours earlier. We don't get this like turnaround moment that we get later where she straps on the chainsaw and goes after her. She, she would have run away if she could, but she can't. And so she's doing everything she can. And I think that performance is really stellar for that reason. He, like we don't know anything about her and to, to discover that this girl who is the tiny little little literally babe in the woods in this horrible situation and being tricked and bodies thrown at her and this absolute nightmare thing and somehow managing to keep it together and like even though she's hysterical crying she's always thinking and like, okay i had adrian like folks at home i'll post this picture now i had adrian sign this shot um which you guys and she had several ones to, to pick. And the reason I picked it is because it's, it's uh, for those at home, it's of her after she finds Bill and she runs back to the cabin and she, she tied up the door and she's put down the baseball bat and she picks up that barbecue tongue and she's just standing, ready, waiting. The look on her face is just, she's not scared. She's not a victim. She is just like so totally alive in this shot. Ding dong, Patrick from the future again. I want to insert this here because I really wanted to talk about this with the boys, but I forgot because this is one of my favorite moments of the movie on this last watch. The scene, the scene, but the part where Brenda's body gets thrown into the window and, and how Alice reacts to that. She screams, yes, and she's she's crying, and she's but she's also kind of frozen as well. And I've heard people make fun of her at screenings of this. During the scene, they start giggling because they're like, get out, you stupid bitch. She just barricaded herself in. She just tied up that door. She doesn't have anywhere to go. And there's a certain cruelty to throw a body through the window and then just have your lead actress have to sit with it. Brightly lit. Bill was in the dark. It might still be a joke, but now there's death laying at your feet in grim, well-lit reality. And she's got to cope with this knowing that I just barricaded myself in. And if I go out... They're out there because they just threw this body through the door. And I realized today, as I was listening back to this conversation, that in this scene, Mrs. Voorhees needs her to come out, obviously. She realized she knows she can't get through the door. She knows enough. To, she's been spying enough to know that that door is now barricaded. She's probably been watching this whole time, watching Alice go find Bill, watching her reaction and sitting and laughing and laughing huh? or just scowling or whatever. You know, she just she knows so now that Alice is barricaded in the house, in the cabin, you have to get her out. So Mrs. Voorhees does exactly what Bill did earlier in the movie with the snake. He had to flush that snake out, and that's exactly what Pamela Voorhees is doing here. And even then, throwing the body through the window did not get Alice to come out the door so that Pamela could kill her. Alice does the right thing. She stays in, which is why... Mrs. Voorhees has to play her final card. She has to show up and make this girl think that she's been saved when, oh boy, she has not. Ding dong, back to the show. Well, she says her line in there is, what am I going to do? And even there, she's thinking, what am I going to do? I got to do something because nobody's here. It's just me and they're dead. And like you said, Michael, and I agree, it's like in Friday the 13th, as opposed to Halloween or Texas Chainsaw or even the Scream movies, they're always saved or they get this help. She doesn't have it. She literally has to fight. It's, it's that fight or flight. And she's like, I'm going to do it. And when she does it, she literally decapitates the, the villain. And that yeah. is the way it's going to end. It's like, it, I have to put you down because you're going to keep coming at me. And nobody's here to save me. And, you know, this is 
a, a fight to the finish, which is why I love uh, Alice's character so much, because it is a fight to the finish and she has to do that as much as and she realizes I can't keep running away. And no matter, I mean, she realizes that when she hit her with the pot in the, in the, in the closet, she should have just kept hitting her. But, you know, but again, there's that innocence in her, you know, I'm not going to, I put the woman down. That's it. I'm going to get out of here. And then it's like, oh no, I can't just hit her with a thing. I got to decapitate. She doesn't know she's in a horror movie. Well, (laughs) and in regular life, that would have put her down. Well, it's that thing, you know, anytime you watch a horror movie with, with, you know, maybe someone who's not as invested in the genre, my dad always likes to point out when they knock down the slasher, for example, he's like, well, why don't they just kill them there? Because the reality is, is a lot of us don't have that in us. Like, I, I don't want to kill somebody, you know, like that. And the idea that that in of itself is a horror, whether that person is coming for you or not, there's an unconscious body on the ground that to take that next leap. And so I think what's interesting is that Alice is pushed past that point. We see her knock the killer down. She doesn't want to do this. She doesn't want to kill this old woman, uh, but she has to, otherwise it will forfeit her own life. And she only does so after realizing that, you know, you, you kind of have to have them get up sometimes to realize the true terror doesn't Um, stop coming. I just want to give a shout out. I'm a fight choreography person. I've studied it for years and I love it. The fight choreography is, is not flashy. It's not super cinematic, but it's very gritty and very real and excellently performed. Particularly that what could have been a grindhouse cat fight on the beach was very gritty and very upsetting. When 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 poor Adrian King is getting her face pounded into the sand, that is <laughs> it's real. It's real. It's real. <laughs> Yeah, it is real. Because they, they literally were going at it. Literally tooth and nail. Like when, when, when Pamela bites her arm, I'm like, you don't, you don't bite Adrian King. Do not do that to her. That's not nice. I think I think wonderfully done. And people underestimate. Well, credit to Betsy Palmer, too, for being down. Like how many like veteran actresses are you going to call and be like, we're going to throw you on the beach in the middle of the night and you're going to have to beat the shit out of this degrees, co-ed, yeah. you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> but we're going to give you a really thick sweater, so it's okay. Okay. This is how gay I was as a child. When she popped up in the movie, at the end, this is me at 10, I went, oh, it's Betsy Palmer from Mr. Roberts. Big, high-pitched, squeaky, gay guest. I, I don't know. It might have even been my first gay guest. Who knows? <laughs> sure. I'm going to say it is. My mother was like, no, it's not. It can't be. I'm like, no, it is. It is. Okay. So the big question on everyone's mind, where's the gay in Friday the 13th? Where's the gay? Right here. Uh, the yeah, audience. Right in the on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, I, I, it's, I mean, it's my signature move. It's what I got to do. I mean, starting at the top, I'm going to have to throw some to Pamela Voorhees. Yeah. There's I mean, never any mention of a Mr. Voorhees. She's wearing sensible shoes. She has a CB radio in the car. Yeah, she has a solid Indigo Girls haircut. Um, Let's be real. And she's tough. She's she's throwing bodies. We're like in my criminal profile of her. I'm like she's a strong woman. Like when I see the with the way the bodies are being tossed around, I'm like, like what has she been doing since 1957? I would say she owns a greenhouse nursery. That's what she does. <laughs> she knows her way around the woods. She knows her way around cutlery. Um, cutlery. You Uten- that utensils. What am I thinking? She must be. She must be lifting weights. She puts Steve up in a tree. <laughs> Well, she's got that Jeep. Maybe she's yeah. into masonry or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah, and also lesbian. Uh, also, Brenda, huge bisexual vibes. And I, I Brenda is my favorite <laughs> character. I love Alice. I love Adrian King. But in another movie, Brenda should have survived. She's too smart. Because you can tell she just finished her third year at Sarah Lawrence and she just became a vegetarian and she can't shut up about it. <laughs> she's got to be the smartest person in the room all the time. And I like her. And she, she's like, she's happy whoever loses. 
Stripanopoly. She's, she's going to be happy with either. She'll be happy with both. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, yeah, I, I like Brenda. I, I, she was always a, that cool character. Somebody, a, a very, there was a, a motherly feel to her. Yeah. I, I felt like maybe not so motherly, but maybe big sister, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Cause I get to feel like she's went to college. The other, the, the, like Jack Marcy, Ned didn't. So she's, I know everything about everything. I know about vitamin C and nitrites. What's that vitamin C stuff do for you? Vitamin C is supposed to neutralize the nitrites or something. Yes. What is yes. funny, this, this era has a lot of what we would consider to be accidental queer aesthetic anyway. I mean, like Kevin Bacon is not a queer character in this movie, but he looks like every Falcon Studios model of the time, you know? So I think that, whether Victor Miller or uh, Sean Cunningham knew what they were doing in the shorty shorts era, no, but it sure served us all very well later. You know? I, I thought it was kind of interesting. I was like, well, he's wearing like a bikini down the beach. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> and there's that shot where it pans up from whoever's the desk where they just pan up the legs and it's just like basket right there left to the screen. Just that you can't make, well, it's Kevin Bacon's package. It's sizable. So, uh, um, and now a lot of people think that Steve, Christy gives off gay vibes. And I say to them that you're being thrown off by the ascot and the denim short shorts. No, 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 no. I definitely think that Steve is heterosexual, not just because he's dating Alice. There's something about that relationship that says to me in his life that he's artsy, some type, clearly not drawing, unless he's never taken interest. Like he's some sort of artsy type, but also some sort of person in control, like a director or a professor even. And Alice is some sort of underling, like she's in the cast or she's a student. There's something inappropriate going on about this relationship. He seemed great in the city because he's rich and successful and he's smart and he knows things. But now that he dragged me out into the woods, he's really kind of a drip because I'm also imagining Steve being the kind of guy, like every time you have sex, you don't have sex, you make love. And when you make love, it's this whole thing spiritual experience you know he says things like our two spirits are conjoining this is such a celebration of life and the whole room is lit up with lemon scented candles and alice wants out and i don't blame her i gotta put a big question mark on bill bill who when i first saw it i thought was victor garber and godspell because he came up with no shirt in the sweat and just michael gets it (laughs) (laughs) he just wandered off the set of godspell was painting the painting the duck but just because people like oh there are there are there are love interests him and bill they just met they just met. They have rapport and she's seeing somebody like the he's giving off. Oh, I just got here. I found my gay. He's smart. He's funny. He's polite. He doesn't hit on me. He doesn't have any lemon scented candles in his cabin. Two weeks later, Alice will realize that, oh, he's my summer gay. Vibe, even if we don't know it yet. That could have happened in a couple of weeks, but mm, now we'll never know. So for me, Bill is a maybe gay. Well, there is this thing that I'm always, I've always been fascinated by, and it's the the sort of performative nature that that straight men have with each other. Because I always say that straight guys can be gayer than gay men sometimes oh, when you watch how they they like perform for each other, or like look at me, you know, and all this stuff. Uh, yeah, I was a lifeguard in high school, and boy, did I see this a lot. Um, and it was kind of. Um, that's the energy I get from this. Like, because it does read as very homoerotic, but it's just like, look, look, I'm going to be the cool, cool guy at camp. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, before we wrap up, I just want to backtrack to Brenda, because this is the stuff that haunts me about this movie. Um, her, 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 her death scene. The fact that, uh, Mrs. Voorhees breaks the pattern of what she's been doing and has to lure 
Brenda out. Because at this point, Brenda is tucked safely in bed for the night. She's got her nightgown on. She's got her dowdy nightgown on. She's got her book. She's ready to go to sleep. And she's also high. So she should have been really easy to overcome. Yet, Mrs. Voorhees breaks her pattern, puts on a child's voice, a child in distress, scratch that, her Jason, her child Jason in distress, and has to lure her out to trick her because she's too darn smart. It's really horrifying, particularly since I've been to the campsite. Now, that slope that she's walking down, I walked down it. It is so steep and so slippery. And she was doing it at night in a nightgown in the rain. Snaps off to you, Lori Bartram, for doing that a hundred times. It, it's I, I find that scene terrifying. And it doesn't, there's nothing like it anywhere else in the series. That the fact that this particular character, Mrs. Ford, is like, this one's smart. She's gonna be tough to tough to track. That's up to trap. Any final thoughts by Friday the 13th before we wrap up? I'll go. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Uh, Final (laughs) thoughts. For Friday the 13th, uh, I think final thoughts are it's definitely one of those movies, if not a great horror film, that kind of breaks the strides of what we've been seeing. And I think a lot of what we talked about, I hadn't even revisited, which was, you know, Alice not being saved by anybody. I thought that was such a great point today. And the fact that this film has sustained since 1980 still, still keeps going. Um, I think it's, I, I, I enjoyed the fact that it was Mrs. Voorhees, a mother who took command and uh, became the villain here, but not really such a villain, such a pathetic, not a pathetic character, but a character that we can kind of empathize with. I wish they would have, you know, gone a little bit deeper, but in 1980, we weren't doing that for a slasher film of an independent film. They were just trying to make their money. So for me, I always um, enjoyed watching. I still, still till today, I could still put it on and still enjoy it. Uh, And never feel bored by the film at all. And I think what Cunningham did and Adrian King did with Alice and Harry Manfredini and Tom Savini and Betsy Palmer and that whole cast and Barry Abrams props to Barry Abrams for his cinematography. Um, you know, it was nice to get something a little bit different and I don't think we've seen it again after that. I I think everything just kind of stood with Michael Myers, Jason, the son and Freddy Krueger. And then we get Scream and Scream became, you know, its own uh, evolution of these films. Um, But I, I, you know, I think the next time we saw something was kind of basic instinct. Um, And I, I was happy that Betsy Palmer, even though she thought it was going to be the biggest turkey, she said, um, she really gave her all with that performance. Uh, and it really stands out. I, just a one note. There's one extreme close-up that they do on her when she's finally revealed and that she's looking at Alice run and that thing is right here on her face. And you can see by that point, that character is gone. Cause now she starts talking in her son's voice. And I remember just being like, Oh, that's creepy. Like, you know, I know with Billy and 
Black Christmas, we hear him, but when we, but Friday the 13th, we're now seeing her. And I know some people criticize her for uh, one of the things of, well, you know, we don't see Mrs. Voorhees through any of it. She's just revealed in the third act. And I was like, that's probably what kept me going is like, usually if you show me somebody, I'm like, oh, it's, it's this person, but why? I don't know. It's, it's, I know like, uh, Laurie Metcalf and Scream 2. I know she's the killer. I just don't know why she is till you reveal it. Like, you know, but with having her, you know, having Betsy Palmer kind of hidden for a while, I, I don't know. I take such great pride with that while, while watching that film. There's so many elements that I love talking about it. Yeah, I don't mind that element at all, just to, to top of that, just because, like I said earlier, this is how these things happen. It was just some random person who came in, like like in Slumber Party Master, it's the same thing. There's no reason for what happens to happen. This guy just shows up, and that's yeah. what she did, too. She just comes in and crashes a party, and she has her reasons, and she you didn't do anything wrong, but to her, you did. Yes, yes. You're all those people that did this to my son. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting when I talk to younger film fans as they discover these movies, something that sometimes comes up are these films that when films like these permeate culture so much, the younger generations feel like they don't get as much from them because they like what, uh, what they know from these movies they've seen in other things that were inspired by these movies. And I think that that's not necessarily the right track to take because when you look at something like Friday the 13th, it's proof that it's brilliant. Brilliance can happen in simplicity. There's not actually a lot on the page that defines what this movie is. It's all in the execution. And no matter how many times it's replicated, no matter how many times it's aped or, or paid homage to, uh, there's something terribly unique and brilliantly, um, brilliantly simple that makes it get under your skin. And I think that, uh, that's what people need to look at. That the fact that it's oft replicated, uh, oft replicated, but never duplicated. Uh, and, um, you can't make a, you can't set out to make a classic, a classic just kind of happens. And that's what happened here. Um, I, I love this movie and I think that it continues to persist because it's still pervasive and still trailblazing all these years later. Okay. All right, boys. I think we've done the Friday the 13th Spectacular. Now, uh, remind everybody at home where they can find you. Bart, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram at Bart Mastronati Photography, on Facebook at Bart Mastronati. So you can find me there. Cool. Michael? Uh, both on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Verratti. Also, if you want to check out Midnight Mass, it's at Midnight Mass Pod. We release an episode every other Wednesday. Uh, yeah, good stuff. You and Peaches are so good together. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Thank you, boys. This has been fantastic. Um, stay safe, stay healthy, and um, stay out of the woods. Happy Friday the 13th. <laughs> Happy Friday the 13th. Wow. 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 Can I tell you something, Screamers? I am a happy camper right now. And this is why. 
When I set out to reboot the Friday the 13th Spectacular, when I said I want to go back to the beginning and discuss this first film again, my main goal was to not have a conversation that I've had a hundred times before about this movie or that I've heard a hundred times before about this movie. And Michael and Bart delivered that in bucketfuls, just the way I like it. They brought so much to the table about the movie that I had not seen before or had not thought about before. And that got me thinking about stuff. And I kept discovering new things in the movie. And I have to say, for a movie that's 43 years old that I've seen 85,000 times to still discover new things in it, that's something. So my biggest, warmest thank you to both Michael and Bart. I tip my tiara to you both. And I also have to apologize to Michael Verratti because I realized listening back that I mispronounced his last name every single time. You see, I also have a friend named Michael Velardi. My brain put those names together in my head to make one name that I'm mispronouncing for both people involved. So Michael Velardi does not exist. Michael Velati does though, so I'm sorry. I can also just blame it on my Long Island accent coming out. Hey, it's Michael Velati. how's it going on? No, but I said it wrong and I'm sorry. It's terrible and unprofessional, bad me. Bad me. I'm smacking myself in the hand. So if you really, really loved Bart and Michael and want more, 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 well, you could go and watch Dragula to see Michael. And you can go to Bart's photography page and look at his work. Or you can pay tribute to them both at the exact same time by checking out Tales of Poe, the movie they worked on together. Bart co-directed it, and Michael wrote the screenplay for the third segment. And you might be sitting there thinking, oh, Edgar Allan Poe, I know all that. Well, you haven't seen Edgar Allan Poe the way these boys do Edgar Allan Poe. They've taken these stories, they've shaken them up, they've twisted things around, they've brought them to the present, and they've queered them the fuck up, and they're fabulous. And if that's not enough, this movie has got, like, every 80s scream queen you can imagine in it. It's it's got Adrian King from Friday the 13th. It's got Amy Steele from Friday the 13th Part 2. It's got Debbie Rashawn from, like, everything. Leslie Donaldson from Happy Birthday to Me. Carolyn Williams from Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. It's got Desiree Gold from Sleepaway Camp. And for extra gay, it's got fucking Randy Jones, the cowboy guy from The Village People. Plus, it's got Alan Roe Kelly. Filmmaker Alan Roe Kelly, who is supposed to be here today for this episode, but he booked a commercial. Alan, girl, you missed out. So go check out the movie. It's fabulous. It's on Tubi, which means it's free. So what are you waiting for? Oh, you're waiting for the end of the episode. Good point. Let's wrap this up. So if you're following me on social media, you will know that for a while now, I have been asking, begging, pleading for submissions of your Friday the 13th stories, memories, whatever. I was going to put them together in one big mega episode, but I realized that that's a lot to have all at once. So I've decided I'm shutting down the Friday the 13th Spectacular for the night. But tomorrow, I'm releasing the Friday the 13th Spectacular after party. Oh, yeah. The party's supposed to be over. The doors are locked. The lights are off. But you know what? We're still going. And this is when it's going to get weird. So keep your eyes out in your feed for the second part of the Friday the 13th Spectacular. That will be coming out on Saturday, January 14th. When I'm turning things over to you. And God knows whenever I turn things over to you guys, things get crazy. I'll also be telling you some stories about my trips to Camp Nobi Bosco the, for the Friday the 13th film side tours because they're fabulous. And if you're in the area, if you're on the East Coast, go. But you'll hear all about that tomorrow. So before we wrap up, I just want to remind you that it is Sean S. Cunningham month. And normally when I do these months where I, where I pay tribute to a director, I'll do one really famous film of theirs and one 
not-so-famous film of theirs. So when the party's over, when the spectacular has been put away till the next Friday the 13th, the next episode of Scream Queens after that is going to be on his film The New Kid, starring James Spader. And my guest will be the fabulous Trey Dean and the also-fabulous Canadian Tara Gardner. I mentioned following me on social media. If you're not doing that already, please, uh, you can find me on Facebook at Scream Queens. I'm not on Twitter anymore, so don't bother. And I'm on Instagram at Scream Queens Podcast. And of course, that's Queens with a Z. And if this was your first time listening to the Scream Queen experience, I hope you had a good time. And you know what else? I hope you come back. So be sure to hit follow or subscribe on your podcast listening device, and you'll find out every time there's a fresh new steaming episode of Scream Queen for your ear holes. And hey, if you had a good time, regular listeners, share this with a friend. If you didn't have a good time, share it with an enemy. Also, if you want to spice up your Sunday nights, come hang out with me on Sunday, January 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at the Sunday Night Scary Movie Party. We're going to be watching Frozen. And on Sunday, January 29th, we're going to be watching Windchill, starring Emily Blunt. It's free, and all you got to do is go to bit.ly slash watch SQ. It's tons of fun, and you're missing out. And hey, if your head is spinning from all the links that I just threw at you really quickly, don't worry. They're all right down there in your show notes on your podcast listening device. So until tomorrow, my beautiful, beautiful screamers, when the party continues after dark, continue to make the world a more fabulously creepy place. And you do that by following the Scream Queen's golden rule. Fight or flight. Survive the night. Make it to the final reel. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay fabulous. And see you tomorrow. <laughs> music for tonight's show, unless otherwise specified, has been written by Sam Haynes. You can find all of his music at www.bandcamp.com. Bitches! <laughs> Ew.